the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Oh, drives one. Happy Friday, Jason Churchill. The FSS Plus podcast is back. Rolling solo today. Joe Doyle on vacation. He will be back next week. Lots to get to. Lots happening in the baseball world, especially since we think about the baseball world from top to bottom. High school, college, the minor leagues, the big leagues. If there was a league above Major League Baseball, we would think about that too. But uh, here's what's on the agenda for today. I want to talk about the state of the Chicago White Sox. Partially because I think it needs to be discussed a little bit more than it is. Frankly, I don't think the White Sox can be talked about enough right now. The Cardinals are kind of stealing the thunder that I think should be split down the middle with the Chicago White Sox. But uh, both of these teams have done it to themselves. So we'll talk about the state of the White Sox and what could happen for them in uh, in 2023. What maybe should happen uh, to them in 2023. But some of that will be up to them. Both in terms of performance and decisions in that front office. Also want to talk about early MVP candidates in each league. I, I'm not a big MVP person. I'm not, I, I don't sit around and, and dwell on and, and, you know, follow this close, but I am fascinated by how much it tends to change some years. And then some years it's the same dude from the first month all the way through. We saw Aaron judge pretty much go wire to wire in 2022. And, and maybe you can say the same for, for Shohei Otani in 2021. But sometimes, like this season, there's those early first five, six, seven, eight weeks. Those candidates they jump out, and you're like, "Well, can he can he sustain it?" Because a lot of times, it's players that have never done this before, at least to this level. I think that's what we're experiencing in both leagues a little bit right now. We'll go over that a little bit, and I want to talk about uh, three prospects nearing a call up or potentially nearing a call up. I'm not predicting here. I have no insider information to share with you. But I'm just taking a look at three candidates that are high enough in the minors and performing and seem close enough to kind of address their situation with their clubs, their organization, the organizational needs, and how that player is performing and developing at uh, at the minor league level. Uh, before we get started, quick reminder for MLB draft fans. Hit up futurestarsseries.com and check out Joe Doyle's latest draft board. It now stretches to 500 players, uh, so boy, have fun. Uh, we talked about this last week. It took me like three days, four days to get through all 500 players because I, you know, that's the best way to learn. I haven't seen all these players. I've seen the top 20, the top 30 maybe, especially the college kids. But uh, it took me a while to get through that, but it was fascinating to do. And now it stretches to 500 players. Also, over at YouTube, outfielder Kendall George, considered a top 50 prospect by most, joined uh, Mr. Doyle in his first uh, episode of MLB Draft spotlight uh, so it's the first one of the year and we'll have another one of those uh coming next week uh as well if, if you're mad like i am that there was no mlb draft spotlight this week well you know yell at joe like he's not here let's just collectively yell at joe doyle i mean i got no problem with it joe you're slacking joe went on vacation okay and and here's the thing that i don't like about joe going on vacation doing this podcast alone so if if you're a, if you're a radio guy, you've spent time in radio, or you've hosted podcasts before, you understand how different it is hosting a show by yourself versus doing it with a co-host. It's a lot easier, a lot simpler uh, when you're just talking to someone. But here I am sitting here, essentially talking to myself. Of course, I don't think about it that way, but that's essentially what I'm doing here: sitting in a home studio alone in Seattle, Washington, talking to myself. I think about it as as I'm talking to you, all three of you, or all 300 of you, or all 3,000 of you, or all 3 billion of you, because I know there are people in China listening to this, because that's how huge my ego is. No, go check out Joe's, uh, Joe's MLB Draft Spotlight Show. You can find the link to that, by the way. You can go to YouTube and just search for Future Star Series, and you can find it. But uh, if you're on the website on desktop, you can find that link 
you'll see the YouTube logo. Just click on that. It'll take you to the page. You can subscribe on YouTube or you can go to the podcast drop down right there on uh, on the homepage. And if you're on mobile, click the uh, the little uh, the little waffle, the hamburger on the right side, the bottom one, and you can find the uh, the podcast drop down and just click on the YouTube. You'll see it. Kendall George YouTube show. Uh, find that those are uh, those are pretty fun. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FSS underscore plus. You'll get notified when anything new is posted to the site, including YouTube shows and podcasts, as well as our development uh, events. Also for draft day, that's an account you're going to want to make sure you're following. I know you have other options. I know there's Baseball America. I know there's MLB Pipeline. I know there's Keith Law at The Athletic. Respect what all of those people do. I'm a huge Keith Law fan. I like what Kylie McDaniel brings to ESPN a lot. Uh, Eric Longenhagen at Fangraphs. Like those guys. We're going to do it a little bit differently. Uh, we have essentially what's going to be a two-man show for the draft this year, but we're going to do it a little bit differently, and we're going to kill this. Right? Joe Doyle's actually going to – the draft being in Seattle makes it advantageous for Joe and I because we're from the area. Joe will be at the draft at least on day one, uh, and and we have some resources that we're going to take advantage of here uh, – here at Future Star Series, FSS Plus. That's at FSS underscore plus on uh, on Twitter. Big things coming for the draft, including real-time reactions. Cannot wait. It's been a little while since I've done the draft from a, uh, you know, from a league-wide standpoint. Um, in fact, when I was at ESPN uh, back in, uh, what was that? Uh, I guess 2013 that would have been. Would have been my last year covering the draft for ESPN. So that was uh, that was fun. Getting back to that is also very exciting for me. Uh, you can follow Joe Doyle on Twitter at Joe Doyle MILB, and I'm at Prospect Insider. Um, all right, let's talk some baseball. We're nearing the quarter point of the 2023 season, which is around 40 games, right? I mean, I did my math. Come on, four times 40 is 160. That's essentially a full season. Uh, we're already there. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Well, you know who's not having fun? Certainly doesn't look like it anyway. The Chicago White Sox. Despite winning six of their last 10 entering play Thursday, the White Sox are 13-25 and and already seven and a half games back of first place Minnesota. And the Twins aren't off to an amazing start. They're just 20-17. and This White Sox team, I don't want to say it's baffling, but it's quite amazing to think about injuries, an aging roster, no impact help from the farm, the second worst run prevention in the league thanks to a combination of, well, the worst bullpen in baseball this side of the Oakland A's, and a mediocre rotation performance to date. They also have a vile defensive club. This is a this is a defensive team where you just wonder how bad it would look just visually. I don't mean with the metrics. I mean just visually from a fan standpoint, from an observer standpoint, from a front office standpoint, from a scouting standpoint. How bad would that defense look, especially in the outfield, if they didn't play in a small ballpark? If they had to cover the ground, say, uh, that, that needs to be covered in Detroit, if they played their home games there, how bad would it look? But the question I want to explore today is, you know, two of them actually. How did the White Sox get here and and why? And, you know, what's their move? Like, what what is the move when you're the White Sox and you're in the situation you're in right now after 38 games? This is a team, by the way, that won 93 games in a division title two years ago. And they were 35 and 25 and made the playoffs during the shortened season in 2020. It appears they climbed out of a quick, you know, retooling when they, you know what, they won 62, 667, 62, and 72 games, 2017 to 2019. And then they had two good years, essentially, and then went back to 500 last year and have been terrible so far this year. What in the world is going on in Chicago? Well, here's the thing. When you dig into it, it shouldn't be that surprising. It is because there's more talent on that team than 13 and 25 suggest. But it really shouldn't be all that surprising. Now, three things stick out to me about this roster in general. It's a little bit of an older roster. Last year was the fourth oldest roster in baseball. I think this year it's the fifth oldest. They let Jose Abreu go, so they gained a little bit of uh, youth, so to speak, there by going with Andrew Vaughn and the Jake Burgers of the world. Great. But it's still, and this is number two, 
a very injury-prone roster, and it's not just fringe guys. It's Luis Robert. It's John Moncada. It's Eloy Jimenez. Lance Lynn missed 10 starts last year. Liam Hendricks is out right now rehabbing from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and we certainly wish him well. It does sound like he's going to be back soon, but this team has been banged up. But this team isn't banged up this year, and it surprises anyone. I mean, that's, that's Rick Hahn's job as the general manager of this club, to assess those injury risks and cover for them. The idea is to win baseball games, right? Well, that hasn't happened. Clearly, it hasn't happened. And they haven't made a whole lot of efforts to do that. So that's number two. Number one, older roster. Number two, injury prone. And it's not just the older players that are injury injury prone. Uh, but number three, there's a, there's a lack of a window right now when you look at this roster, both now and the future. It is one of the worst four, five, six farm systems in baseball, depending on who you are and how you look at it, with no impact anywhere near the majors. They don't have like this hot number one, top 30 prospect that's like two weeks away from getting called up or for sure getting called up in 2023 as the next star of the front. They don't have that. And they have just two players of impact signed beyond 2024. And both Jimenez and Robert are major injury risks, clearly. I mean, we could talk all day about a team in the third largest market in the league that's one, struggling to generate dollars. Like this team is 24th in revenues. I don't even know where to begin. You know, talking about a team in Chicago that's 24th in revenues being absolutely buried by the Chicago Cubs. Like how that's not more even, I have no idea. And I'm not just talking about the ranking. The Cubs bury the White Sox in revenues. And two, they don't really spend real money to compete. The White Sox are 13th and 26-man payroll on opening day and 14th and 40-man. It is the third largest market in baseball. They could generate revenue, and they're generating over $300 million, but they're only spending about $180 million cash out in 2023. That's not enough. And if you're thinking, well, they compete in their own market because of the Cubs, well, you know, great. That's why the revenues are down and not third. I'm not expecting them to be one, two, or three necessarily. But the Dodgers and the Angels share a market to a large degree, and the Angels are ninth in revenue and sixth in payroll. And it's not a well-run organization, but the financial investment is there and paying off from a revenue standpoint, despite the fact that the Angels haven't won jack since Jerry DePoto left. The Mets are number two in their own market to the Yankees, and we know the story there with payroll. They're number one by a wide margin, and they've ranked top half of the league and even top 10 in revenues in recent years. Why are the White Sox 24th? But let's dive deeper. I want to look a little deeper into what's not working with this White Sox roster and how it may change in the coming months. I think that's the funnest part about this. You know, First off, there are players that are aging out, and that's... I don't want to say that's not the White Sox fault. You know how old the player is when you sign him. You knew how old Lance Lynn was when you signed him. You knew how old Yasmani Grandal was when you signed him. Lynn is now 36. Grandal is now 34. Uh, Grandal's in the final year of his deal. Lance Lynn has an option for 2024. Grandal has played in, by the way, 272 out of a possible 422 games since signing in Chicago. Should they have seen some of this coming or at least seen the risk of that? Absolutely. He's a catcher. He's in his early 30s. What are you doing? Like, I'm not saying don't sign Grandal. I'm saying have a better backup plan. Have a better backup plan for consistent offensive production. Have a better backup plan for catcher. Not to mention Grandal's coming off a terrible offensive season a year ago. What did he play, 99 games, I think, in 2022? And he's been better this season. He's been totally fine. He's been good this season. But the decline is also apparent on the defensive side. And he's the club's big money acquisition. When they kind of started this climb out of the, the the rebuild situation, it's you know that and Ben Attendee, the biggest contract on the books. But the time missed due to injury continues to be extremely damning. Robert Luis Robert is a terrific player when healthy, and knock on wood, he's been healthy so far this year and is playing well. But Mancada, who's not an old player, nine games played. Right before I hit this red button, I look, how many games has my nine games played? 
Uh, Eloy Jimenez has missed 13 games. Tim Anderson has missed half the season thus far. Those are all core players missing major time. And you know what? While the Anderson thing is, I don't want to say you should have seen this coming in 2023 with Tim Anderson, but, and we'll talk a little more about Tim Anderson in a minute, but with Robert and with Jimenez, you absolutely should have seen this coming and planned for it. And Lance Lynn not being quite as good as he has been in past years, you absolutely should have seen that coming. Osmani Grandot, you absolutely should see that coming. 34-year-old catcher. And the, 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 the most inexcusable thing, I think, in Major League Baseball for front offices is having an awful bullpen. It's inexcusable. Yes, even though Liam Hendricks has been out, there are teams out there missing relief pieces and still have strong bullpens. Heck, Seattle, right here in Seattle where I sit, the Mariners have had Andres Munoz for like a couple of innings, and they have one of the best bullies in the league so far because they weren't relying on one guy to carry them. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that the roster itself is the only problem. It is the biggest and clearest and most obvious problem, though. There could be some some coaching issues. There could be some player issues. But again, those are also front office decisions. The White Sox appear to have not been prepared to produce bullpen performances with or without Hendricks. Liam Hendricks coming back isn't going to solve all the bullpen problems. Those guys have to, the guys they have other than Hendricks have to be significantly better than they are. And the Sox do have some players that are performing right now, which could make for a really interesting summer, assuming they don't turn their season around very, very quickly here. And they have won six out of ten through Wednesday's games. But should they continue on this trajectory, come July, we're probably going to be talking about, you know, or at least asking, hey, is Rick Hahn going to sell off pieces instead of looking to add, you know, to their efforts? Because, you know, they're 13-25 and 25 right now. It's a big hole to climb out of. Although in that division, the opportunity is still there. Though it's very difficult to see with the American League West and the American League East the way they're going right now. It's very competitive in the West. Nobody's pulling away. But in the American League East, it looks like they could get a division champ in two wildcard teams. So you're going to be limited. The opportunities in the other two divisions, especially in the Central, are going to be limited. You might have to win the division to get into the postseason. So there's no time to waste if you're the White Sox. But there's some really interesting decisions the White Sox and Rick Hahn and Ken Williams are going to be confronted with. Aside from the obvious bullpen pieces, including Liam Hendricks, if he gets back to the mound and throws well. And it sounds like he's a week or two away from rejoining the team per uh, skipper Pedro Grafal. But Joe Kelly, Keenan Middleton, Kendall Graveman, also easy decisions to trade when teams start calling in July. If the White Sox indeed are still in a position where it makes no sense to actually add or hold. They very well could be there. That's what it looks like they're going to be. But the tougher decision, and we'll start in the bullpen, what do you do with Aaron Bummer? He's a really interesting piece and can be really dominant from the left side. Signed through 2024, has two club options for 25 and 26 at very reasonable rates. The contract and his production make it valuable to keep around, but also a very intriguing trade target for contenders. What do the White Sox want to be in 2024-2025? Ronaldo Lopez is a free agent at season's end. He will be on club's radar this summer. Same goes for Lance Lynn and Lucas Giolito. Lynn is a team option for next season at $18 million, but there's also a $1 million buyout. So he's going to be due around, what, $7.5 million for the final two months of 2023? Assuming the team that acquires him isn't sure they're going to want to bring him back for 2024. He could be interesting. He didn't start off great, but he's, Lance Lynn still has stuff. Could be a good back-end addition for a club looking to fill that and get uh, and do a little more than uh, than what your traditional number five does. But Geely tells a really interesting rental. He looks to be back to 2020, 2021 form. Uh, you'd be renting him for half the season or two months of the season. His Velo was up a tick from 2022, throwing more strikes, keeping the ball in the yard better. He keeps this up, and the White Sox could get a solid deal for him this summer, despite the fact that he's a two-month rental. But where I think the deadline could get really interesting for Chicago and for some clubs looking for help is with their position players. 
do you move on from Grandal if he's hitting? Contenders are going to value the bat there even if they don't want him to catch much. Can DH. Do the White Sox take advantage of Luis Robert being healthy? Again, knock on wood because that's where we're it can take a turn on a dime. But do you want to... You know, do you want to take the chance that he's going to be able to stay healthy moving forward? Or do you want to take advantage of the fact that maybe his value is about as high as it's ever going to be between now and the end of his control years? I mean, he's 25 years old. You want to trade away those control years? Probably no, but it's something to consider. He's never played more than 98 games, and that was a year ago. It's really difficult to value a player, even at minimum salary, if he's only going to be available 98 games, because it's not like you can predict that. You can't say, well, he's going to be available for the final 98 games of the season. That isn't how it works. Or the first 98, that isn't how it works. Or the middle 98, that's not how it works. You have no idea. Does Mankata get the bat going and stay healthy now that he's coming off the IL from a back injury, despite having one more guaranteed year in his deal and a club option for 2025? Does Han cut bait and start over there? That might be a situation where you're trading from a position of weakness, where you're trading him on the downside and it would make more sense to let him play the season out and hope that he plays well and stays healthy and maybe do something over the winter, maybe do something next summer. Played 104 games last season, Mankata did. Starts the weekend with nine games played out of 38. It's going to be 28 later this month. It's not a reliable track record of availability. And the performance, while super intriguing, is also inconsistent from year to year. You really don't know what you're going to get from Moncada. And Tim Anderson might be the most fascinating one here. He's going to be 30 in June, has one club option left at $14 million. Missed three weeks to end April, played just 79 games last season, played 123 games in 2021. And since his really good three-year run, 2019 to 2021, he's seen a dip in power and defensive range on top of a little bit of the injury bug. He's not missing whole seasons, but if you're going to miss a player you're, you're spending $14 million on and you want to be part of the core of your team that's trying to win, miss, missing 40-plus games, that doesn't help you plan. And if the White Sox are going to move Anderson, this summer might be the ideal time. Waiting might be a huge mistake, provided he's healthy and putting up solid numbers. Again, he's under club control through this season with a club option for $14 million in 2024. So he's not a pure rental. And I would imagine Tim Anderson's going to be worth $14 million to a lot of clubs, if not every club in baseball next year, to just take the chance that he gives you 100 and 120 games, probably worth $14 million. And if he gives you more than that, huge bonus. Some of the questions that are coming up when I ask about Tim Anderson, by the way, in the scouting community, how long does he stay at short? Like, for me, I think Anderson's more of a long-term second baseman, although he's spent a lot of years at shortstop already, and he's nowhere near a liability at shortstop right now. Not saying that. But if you can plant him at second base for the rest of his career and kind of pull a Marcus Simeon there, you might prolong his defensive impact. And, you know, in reality, we could be talking about Tim Anderson, the two, two-and-a-half, maybe three-win player, rather than the four-and-a-half win star he looked like a couple of years ago. But there are a number of clubs out there looking for middle infield help every single year for the short term, for the long term. And Anderson for $14 million in 2024, it still looks like a really good bet. Especially if it's a team that believes Anderson could impact two pennant races. Grab him in July, pay his full salary, give up what it takes, put him at short, put him at second, whatever you want to do, and ride. And if you're a team that you believe Tim Anderson can impact two pennant races, there's some value there. And if the White Sox want to do this right, they have to consider these things. I'm not saying they have to sell all these players. But if you just hold on, what are you doing? Something has to give here. All these players with all the availability issues and the aging players, something has to give. There has to be, in my opinion, significant turnover on this roster or the White Sox are just praying for rain. And if they really want to, 
Again, they should, in my opinion. They could retool pretty quickly with some smart trades this summer and a bigger focus on getting younger through better results in the draft and player development, but also by making more smart free agent signings in the meantime. And they don't have to trade the Tim Andersons and the and the Lucas Gila for prospects only. You can try to get guys that are major league ready or have a little bit of major league time. There's nothing wrong with doing that. You don't have to trade for guys that are in high A. It's not guaranteed you're going to be able to get what you want. But if it's more valuable to get an average player that has five years of control left rather than a prospect that you're not sure of, that you can't be sure of, then absolutely, by all means. But this team also needs to spend more money. Also need to take a risk. Take a real, like, when we think about the the deal they gave Grandal and the deal they gave Andrew Benatendi this past offseason, $75 million, I mean, this isn't a significant risk. I actually like that deal for them. But they've never signed a player to a $100 million contract or bigger. And they have just $35 million on the books for 2025 and under $20 million for 2026 and 27. In fact, it's uh, it's barely over 30 combined for 2026 and 2027. This is not the Tampa Bay Rays, the A's, the Reds, the Pirates. This is, we are talking about the Chicago freaking White Sox. Why are they so bad at producing consistent impact talent from within? And why do they, in concert, avoid free agent aggression? I'm not even talking about the $253 million players. They signed Andrew Benatini. Again, like the deal. But why not Chris Bassett? Why not Jamison Tayon? Why not Taiwan Walker? Why not Cody Bellinger? Why not Brandon Drury? Why not any number of relievers like David Robertson, Chris Martin, Andrew Che? Why? And the White Sox aren't the only team you can ask this about. Absolutely not. Like if you're in, if you're in Anaheim and you're an Angels fan, you're thinking about the why didn't they get more aggressive with their bullpen? Why didn't they do more on the impact side with the rotation? Why didn't they go after a legitimate one or two to pair with Shohei? Why? I don't know. So the White Sox aren't alone. But they, you know, again, Ben Attendee, like the deal, $15 million a year for five years, but they needed more proven depth to cover for injured incumbents. They, you had to have known or at least planned for Guys like Moncada and Jimenez and even Anderson and certainly Grandal either getting hurt or not performing as well because they're at Lance Lynn. They didn't. And they clearly need more pitching. The White Sox look like a just enough to get by kind of organization right now. And honestly, that's a bad hand to deal new skipper Pedro Grafol. I don't know if Grafol, I actually know Grafol just a little bit, but I don't know if he's going to be a good manager. But he has not been dealt a good hand here. There's talent on this team, but it lacks athleticism, reliable impact, pitching, depth. Depth is a big thing, and depth just doesn't mean do you have a guy in AAA that can play this position. Depth means you have a guy that can actually perform some. It doesn't have to be as good as your starter that went down, of course, because that's rare. But have some, have a plan for somebody who can, you know, hold up their end of the bargain, you know, be average, be fringe average while Tim Anderson gets back or be fringe average while Moncada gets back. They don't have that. They needed a lot of things to bounce their way in 2023. And so far it hasn't. And the results are really anything but surprising considering that. I'm not saying I predicted 13 and 25 through 38 games, but if you told me, these three, four, five things are going to happen. I'm like, this is a bad baseball team. And and that wouldn't be a surprise at that point, right? I expect a vastly different roster in 2024. Let, let me rephrase that. I think they need to turn the roster over. Saying I expect it suggests I have some hints or clues or some sort of confidence belief in Rick Hahn, Ken Williams, I, I don't necessarily, and that that's lack of information more than it is lack of actual confidence. But if this organization hangs on to everyone, it's going to be difficult to take them seriously moving forward because I'm already at the point where I just don't. I mean, this year's deadline could very well be an opportunity for them, assuming they don't flip the script on their season. But what a disastrous start in a winnable division. Again, the Twins are 20 and 17 as I record this. And out front, they're in the lead. 
Cleveland isn't hitting. The Tigers and Royals aren't equipped to win more than what? 75, 80 games on the top end? If that, like, the White Sox didn't do nearly enough over the winter, and they may pay for it by having to sell at the deadline and maybe aggressively too. I mean, that's a that's a fan-alienating process. When you expect to win and then you put yourself in a position where if you sell off the Tim Andersons and the Grandals and the Lance Lins and the Gilitos, you kind of alienate your, fan, alienate your fan base because not all fans really get, hey, this is the absolute right thing to do. So that's a, that's a risk for clubs. There's really no good time to trade off the most popular players on the roster. And it's hitting, it's going to hit especially hard when fans went in expecting a chance to win the division again, like they did two years ago. I mean, you know, and in the bigger picture, how poorly did the White Sox prepare for their quote-unquote winning window? They got two decent seasons out of it? Like, the Astros have had seven and counting. The Braves have had six and counting. The Jays, three and counting. Seattle's already had two successful seasons coming out of their rebuild with no near end in sight. The White Sox had seven losing seasons in a row. In a row. I mean, again, I'm most familiar with Seattle. You think about Seattle's rebuild. They were mediocre under Jackson Rensick. They had a couple of winning seasons. They contended a little bit. They didn't make that. They didn't break through. didn't make the playoffs and never really had an actual good team, right? Jerry DePoto takes over. Uh, prior to the 2016 season, they're mediocre again. 2017, a little better, but still mediocre. 2018, it was a pretty solid team. Not a great team, not a team that broke through, but they won 89 games. And then after that season, they identified an opportunity to rebuild. And how many losing seasons did they have before they got back to winning? Two, okay? Two. That's the way rebuild should work. I'm not saying teams should constantly go on or, uh, on some sort of a full rebuild. But if you do need to do it, that's how it should look. Seattle was terrible in 2019. They weren't good in the shortened season of 2020. Had a bunch of young players. Uh, ended up on like a 73-win pace during that 60-game schedule. So they weren't good again. And then they won 90 games each of the last two seasons. That's how a rebuild should look. If you're the White Sox and you go seven losing seasons in a row... And look at the win totals, 2013 to 2019, 63, 73, 76, 78, 67, 62, and 72. And then they went 35 and 25 in the shortened season, then 93 and 69 in 2021, and then fell to 500 last year and are off to a wretched start in 2023. Is it already over? It, it might be, and it might need to be. It might be the best move for them to punt on some of these guys on the roster. I'm not saying all of them, but it might be time to, to cut bait on some of these guys and start over. And I don't mean start completely over and do an Astro-style rebuild. Trade every single... I'm not saying that. But you can do the rebuilds that keep a couple of key guys around, be aggressive in free agency. Again, you don't have to spend $253 million on guys. But free agency can help you here. Do more of a retool than a rebuild. I just have to wonder... If this organization considers changes beyond player personnel, too. I mean, Ken Williams has been executive VP for 11 seasons, which means Rick Hahn has been the general manager for that entire time. It's not working. It's not working. How long do they get? And I'm not calling for people to get fired. Maybe it's not even really fully their fault. Maybe at the end of the day, they're more mediocre than bad. And this really depends on Jerry Reinsdorf and Howard Pizer, the senior VP. I, I won't hold my breath. I don't expect Reinsdorf and, you know, Jerry and Howard are there in Chicago raking in the dough. I mean, Reinsdorf bought this club, what, in like 1980 or 81 for like $20 million. Nine, there it is right there, $19 million. Its value, the team's value right now, approaching $2 billion. So I don't have any confidence they're going to do the right thing. We'll see. I think it's time to start thinking. If you're not already, it's time to start thinking. Is is Ken Williams the right guy? Is Rick Hahn the right guy? Because I think we already know that Jerry Reinsdorf, not the right guy. Not the right guy. Not the right guy to own and, and ultimately operate a baseball team. I have no comment on Pizer because I don't know his exact role and what that looks like on a daily basis. But a lot of times, senior VPs, presidents of teams 
are more ownership based than anything. They're more, how do I make sure we're financially sound than anything? How do I, you know, essentially make sure that there's acceptable return for the ownership group? They're not personnel people. They're not player people. They're not winning people. They're dollar people. They're money people, generally speaking. The White Sox might be in big, big trouble. All right, let's talk. Uh, let's talk some prospects for a few here. Let me to, to finish off on the White Sox, though. We're not going to be talking about any White Sox prospects here because I don't find a lot of them really all that interesting. I'm not saying they don't have anything, but it's not a real intriguing farm system. Eesh. The team might just be if they don't turn around quickly, they might just be in huge trouble. I just feel for Grafal and that staff there because not dealt a, uh, a fair hand, so to speak. We'll see what he can do with it. Let's get the guys get healthy. We'll see what uh, what Pedro can do. All right, uh, prospects. A lot of kids have made uh, made an impact so far this season. Corbin Carroll, James Outman, Grayson Rodriguez, Josh Young, uh, Hunter Brown, Bryce Miller, Tosh Bradley, Mason Miller in Oakland. The Marlins have just summoned Yuri Perez, who's one of the most intriguing, uh, high ceiling starting pitchers. Uh, you know, uh, rookies now prospects in a long time. I mean, if you don't watch every start Yuri Perez makes, you're going to miss on something. This kid is like, just just go watch video of him. You're going to just be like, holy wow, what this kid could be, what he is right now, the promise is insane. So it's fun that the Marlins did that. So the Marlins traded Pablo Lopez because they knew they had guys like this coming. They knew it. They needed a guy like Luis Arise. They went out and got him. Didn't want to pay Pablo Lopez long-term because they knew they didn't have to, that they could reallocate. And Yuri Perez is one of the big reasons why, the biggest reason why. But that's a really good group of young kids in the big leagues making an impact right now. The question is, who's next? I mean, some of this is like, if you just want to predict who's next, it's really easy to talk about. Well, the Mets have called up Alvarez and Beatty, and, and there's some guys already in the big leagues um, Gabriel Moreno's having a fine season. We haven't seen the power yet, but he's he's been good as well and very valuable for Arizona. But there's some kids in the minors generating buzz that could be next, that could be coming up soon, that could hit the big leagues in May, June, or July. Uh, let's start with Reds infielder Ellie De La Cruz, who's one of the funnest prospects to watch. Uh, he's not going to be 22 until next offseason. He's been raking... Uh, this season since missing, what, the first 16, 17 days of the year. And then he started two for 22 in AAA Louisville. But since then, he has six multi-hit games uh, and has four homers in his past five nights. He's up to 273, 317, 584 with 12 extra base hits on the year. It is massive speed and athleticism, explosive hands, huge upside for De La Cruz. His approach is... Needs some refinement. A little bit of a free swinger. Needs to learn the strikes a little bit better. Needs to be more disciplined there. And ultimately, contact rates. All of that kind of funnels down into how does uh, De La Cruz improve a 32% career strikeout rate in the minors. It's going to be big. He's a little bit boomer bust, but I actually think his chance to make an impact to some extent in the big leagues is rather good because of all the athleticism. He might be able to play some shortstop. He should be able to play some third. His chance to be a star depends on the hit tool. But we've seen guys without great plate discipline. You know, like I'm not saying, I'm not comparing De La Cruz to Vlad Guerrero. But Pops Guerrero was incredible at making solid contact on pitches out of the zone. And more and more players are having success doing that these days than ever before because play discipline is hard. So learn to hit some of those pitches. You still don't want the big chases four five, six inches out of the, you don't really want that. Of course makes it harder and harder to hit, but the pitch is two inches off the plate. If you can get the barrel to it and hit it hundred miles an hour <laughs> by all means, but with De La Cruz, there's risk here and I have no insider information here, but I think of De La Cruz is may, which right now is at, uh, as of Thursday, 361, four homers, and just eight strikeouts and 39 plate appearances. If some of that continues, we're going to see him in Cincinnati before the All-Star break. That's my feeling on De La Cruz. The Reds are kind of dying for a way to kind of excite that that crowd 
and, and, and that fan base a little more. They've traded away the Luis Castillos and the Jesse Winkers and the Eugenio Suarez, and those guys all went to Seattle, hilariously enough. But they've passed you know, they've moved on a lot of guys. Nick Castellanos is gone, Mike Moustakis is gone. So it's really about the young guys now. And the more they can offer glimpses of the future, at least, the better. Now, where De La Cruz ends up on the field is in question. Has the tools to play shortstop. Every tool you could ever want, he's got it. But the chances he finds consistently there and avoids some kind of physical projection that moves him to third base, they're not really great at this point in combination. There are some scouts, by the way, that I've talked to about De La Cruz this week that want to see what he could do in center field. Because you just watch him move, he looks like a superstar center fielder. He, he does. He's bigger and, and thicker, but he moves like, like an Eric Davis moves. Quickly, easily, electric. That's De La Cruz. But if he can handle playing on the dirt, uh, I imagine that's uh, that's where the Reds are going to want to, whether that's shortstop or third base right off the bat, or they you know they make that adjustment later. You can always try him in center field in a couple of years if third base doesn't work out. Um, and that's probably the Reds' uh, best bet to start De La Cruz's career. But I would not be surprised at all if we see De La Cruz at the big league level June, July. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. He's a fun player. Uh, let's move on. Baltimore Orioles. Adley Rutschman in the big leagues. Gunnar Henderson. Grayson Rodriguez. Lots of young talent in an organization. Colton Kowser might be next. He's a little bit of a different prospect. I, I wouldn't say he's the opposite of De La Cruz. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, off to a really strong start in AAA this season. Uh, uh, that last check I noted, he's hitting 300 with a 442 OBP and a 500 slug and 154 plate appearances. That's heading into Thursday's games. 23 years old, brings a little bit of everything to the table, but doesn't really have that carrying physical tool. You know, big speed, big power, doesn't really have that. But right now, the hit portion of his profile is what's standing out the most. It did a year ago when he lit up double A, forced the O's to get him triple A time in Norfolk, and his return there to start 2023 it may not last that much longer, despite the fact the Orioles have three producing outfielders in the majors already. They're already in a spot where the DH is kind of killing them. They're not getting a lot from that that spot. So if they think Kowser can be somewhere around average, he helps them. And they're in the race. The Orioles are off to a pretty good start. The O's also could hold back Kowser a little bit, and maybe attempt to use him to make a trade for pitching this summer. Though he's not really a headliner in an impact deal, uh, not by himself anyway, but he's making a case uh, to get the call before the break by tearing the cover off the ball in the minors. His solid contact consistency is very high. It's one of my favorite kind of combo metrics that I kind of peeled out off of the uh, the batted ball data that's available to us. Uh, You see hard hit rates, and you want them to be in the 40s and, and above, but when you see a guy who's like 37% hard contact and then you look at medium contact and soft contact, when the soft contact is low, you like that. If you see 85 to 90% of the contact is medium or hard, you have to like that. Now, you assess it differently. If he's 50% hard and you know 40% medium, that's different than being 30% hard and 60% medium. But... At least he's not popping the ball up a lot. At least he's not hitting soft rollers, you know, rolling over pitches and grounding it. You know that. And Colton Kowser is one of those guys. 10% soft contact rate to go with big walk rates and very acceptable uh, strikeout numbers at this particular point. So Colton Kowser, outfielder, Baltimore Orioles, they could use the help in that rotation at DH. Could use the help. We'll see how that uh, develops as the season pushes, uh, pushes forward. Uh, another one is Bo Naylor, catcher Cleveland Guardians. He's the younger brother of uh, of Josh Naylor, uh, current Guardian slugger. He's performing well in Columbus. He has seven homers, seven doubles in 33 games. He's drawn 27 walks, too. This is a guy that's going to work counts and ultimately get on base. Continues to improve defensively behind the plate. Uh, most scouts think he's a little bit below average still, but on a trajectory of at least big league quality receiving, and, uh, and he can certainly throw. Uh, the Guardians have baseball's worst offense right now, which is a little bit surprising because I thought they were more of a high-floor offense, even if they didn't have a high ceiling. They just don't have a lot of power. And they added Josh Bell over the offseason. But right now, they are getting 
next to nothing from their catchers. Collectively, the Cleveland backstops are hitting a buck 43 with a 255 OBP and a 261 slugging. They've driven in nine runs and hit two home runs, both of those long balls by Mike Zanino. Now, Naylor made his big league debut last season, so he wouldn't be debuting. He went 0 for 8 with five strikeouts, but his start to 2023 bodes well for another call-up at some point and continued consistency, making contact, hitting the ball hard, may, give him another, may get him another sniff during the summer months. I don't know if anything's in the offing real soon. Cleveland's pretty patient. That'd be a panic move if you did that right now. But the Guardians don't want the Twins to pull away from them in the Central. And Naylor could be viewed as immediate and long-term help at both catcher and DH. At DH, their production's also been near zero. So there you go. I think there's three potential first-half call-ups. And Ellie De La Cruz, the Reds, Colton Cowser, Baltimore Orioles, Bo Naylor of, uh, of the Cleveland. I'm going to throw in a bonus prospect here, by the way. Why isn't Cardinals lefty Matthew Libertor in the major leagues right now? He's in AAA, showing well with average to above average stuff, throwing enough strikes to compete in the majors uh, despite no true out pitch. But he's missed bats in the PCL, and the back of the Cardinals rotation has been rough. Jack Flaherty, Steven Match, Jake Woodford getting tattooed all over the ballpark, and, uh, and Flaherty's not throwing enough strikes. Can't avoid barrels, not throwing enough strikes. Very inconsistent from start to start. They did just get Adam Wainwright back, which should be a stabilizing presence, but the aforementioned trio all appear to be better suited for the bullpen right now. If you could push one of them there, maybe it's Woodford, maybe it's Flaherty, maybe it's Matz, you'd be better off. Your starting staff would be better off. At least give Libertor a shot and see how he responds against big league lineups. He's not a high, kind of high upside guy. He's more of a number four in the future, but maybe he can be that right now. Because they don't have that. They essentially have a top three and then a couple of number sevens at the back end or three number sevens at the back end. The Cardinals are actually the White Sox of the National League. Pretty bad. Pretty bad. Uh, All right, before we get out of here today, let's take a look at uh, early MVP races. Well, who wins the MVP, like I said at the top of the show? Not really something I personally tend to care about a whole lot although it's it's always exciting when a fun young player or player like Shohei Otani uh you know the two-way types or the season that Aaron Judge had a year ago that's always fun and makes the MVP thing more interesting but the races themselves to me are more interesting in terms of how they change or how they don't sometimes it's a front runner that holds on all season like Aaron Judge a year ago he's pretty much the number one guy all year and sometimes it's a dance every step of the way. And right now, the leaders in the clubhouse seem to be players like, I don't know, Wander Franco in Tampa, Matt Chapman in, in Toronto uh, for the American League. In the uh, uh, in the National League, it's I don't, pretty much Braves teammates, Sean Murphy and Ronald Lacuna Jr., I think, right there at the top. There's a couple more names we need to add to that, though. In the National League, uh, you remember Paul Goldschmidt? I think we... We remember, but didn't he do pretty well in the MVP race? I don't know, fairly recently? I can't really remember. My memory's shot. It only goes back like, you know, like a few months. But it seems like, yeah, yeah, Paul Goldschmidt's pretty good. Despite his team's effort to quash his chances of winning another MVP, he's up to 306, 389, 544 for the season. And get this, after a slow start over the last 17 games, Paul Goldschmidt sitting 344 with five homers, including two four-hit games, and obviously had the monster three-home run outing against Detroit last week. Paul Goldschmidt hasn't lost a thing. I had some scouts tell me a couple of weeks ago that were wondering if Paul Goldschmidt had lost a little bit of bat speed. To me, that's a little ridiculous, but it can't happen pretty quickly when you're talking about a guy that's 35. So I didn't completely dismiss it, but Goldschmidt is dismissing it. He's been incredible the last two and a half weeks. Uh, in the National League also, I wonder if Manny Machado gets back in the race. Started really slow, hit 236 in, in March, April. But he's been his usual self in May so far. Brandon Nimmo, uh, he's a worthy name to mention right now in the NL. But the question is, can he keep up this pace because he's really never done this before? Quite to this level. He's been really, he's a good player. We usually don't talk about Nimmo top three, four, five MVP though. But he's been that good so far. Uh, the same goes with Brandon Marsh. Uh, James Outman, the rookie. 
And at some point, we might have to have a conversation about San Francisco Giants infielder Tyro Estrada having a monster season, a really fun young player. And over in the NL, or excuse me, the AL, Bo Bichette obviously belongs in this conversation with teammate Chapman and, and Wander Franco. Uh, Randy Rosarina's season stands out, one of the best offensive starts in the AL. That one's an obvious one. But here's another name to keep in mind. Rangers catcher Jonah Heim. For me right now, Heim is the most underappreciated, underrated player in baseball. And not just this year. He wasn't an offensive star last year, but he's a really good defensive catcher, and he was essentially an average offensive player. I think his WRC Plus was 99. But this year, he's raking. A 159 WRC Plus uh, through Thursday, and a 318, 382, 555 slash for the first place Texas Rangers. That's a really, really good player. Marcus Simeon gets most of the attention there. Corey Seager because of the big contract. Jacob DeGrom because of who he is. But Jonah Heim. And I'm not trying to take away anything from Simeon. He's been really good. And is just as worthy of a name in this conversation right now. But Heim is a tremendous presence for them. Hitting from both sides of the plate. Handling the bulk of the catching duties. Right now he is a legitimate MVP candidate in the American League. And while he may not keep up his current pace... Don't sleep on Jonah Heim. Really good player, really underrated. Needs to get more attention, deserves more attention. 28 years old, really just hitting his stride. Uh, Notably in the American League, Mike Trout and Jordan Alvarez are just kind of hovering, as you would expect them to do. They didn't necessarily get hot starts. They got pretty typical starts to their season. And as others start to cool off, Trout and Alvarez probably won't because that's who they are. So we always have to think about Mike Trout and Jordan Alvarez is one of the elite hitters in Major League Baseball, of course. Uh, 2021 MVP, Shohei Otani. Uh, 142 WRC+, plus, still doing his thing at the plate, and has been very good on the mound again, though not as good as he, as, uh, as he was a year ago on the mound quite yet. He's been a little uneven. He started off with some command problems, if I remember correctly. The first two or three starts had problems walking hitters. And then two of his last three outings, including one against Oakland inexplicably, he just struggled middle of the plate. Got knocked around a little bit. So he's been good, but not great. Uh, but he's still, again, been pretty good at the plate as well. And in that combination, he's always going to be uh, a legitimate MVP candidate. Uh, it looks like Aaron Judge, because of the time he's missed and is missing, eh, he may not be in the, the conversation this year. But you know what? There's no Yankee in this conversation right now at all. Maybe that's a team we should talk about next week. Speaking of next week, uh, while you all are enjoying the big league games this weekend and next week, by the way, reminder, check out your favorite prospects. If you don't have MILB TV to watch your team's favorite, you know, top prospects or your favorite prospects around the league, you're missing out. It is a bargain. If you have MLB TV, you get MILB TV for free. And if you can't figure out how to do that, email Major League Baseball. They'll send you a link. It's that simple. And you know what? Let us know who you're watching. Let us know which prospects and young players you're watching, and we can chat about them in the coming weeks on the show. Joe Doyle will be back next week with me when we dive back into potential draft scenarios, go over which teams should blink first on the trade market in both directions, by the way, and maybe answer your questions. All right, that'll do it for this week. Join us next Friday on the FSS Plus Podcast. So just chill to the next episode.